Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Well, welcome to another episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. My name is Matt Kirkner. I am your host. We have a phenomenal guest with us. And before I introduce him by name, I'm going to share the story of the first time that he and I met. And this goes back about 13 years ago. I was actually in Minneapolis, Minnesota for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Awards. And it was a great event. And they had several chairs on the stage. And in those chairs were supposed to be the individuals receiving the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award. One of those chairs was empty. And the MC announced that the person that was going to receive one of these awards was flying above the city of Minneapolis, was trying to land. And due to a weather event, the plane that he was on was unable to land in the city. And he was still trying to land uh, in the plane. They were still hoping to get him to the event before it ended. As it turned out, that wasn't to be. And uh, this was a person that I had always hoped to meet. I had known who he was for a number of years. So the following morning, I picked up the phone and I called his office and was patched through to his assistant. And I said, I just want to be among the first to offer my congratulations on the receipt of that great award. I was sorry that we hadn't been able to meet the night before and just left it at that. Now, when you leave a message for somebody who's the chairman and CEO of one of the major manufacturing players in the Midwest, somebody who's actually now the corporate secretary of my beloved Green Bay Packers, you don't necessarily expect to hear back. But lo and behold, about 90 minutes later, our guest today called my mobile phone, not only thanked me for calling him, but invited me to lunch. And it wasn't but a few weeks after that, that he and I got together for lunch. And so we've known each other now for 13 years. And it is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the Tech Ed podcast, my friend, chairman and CEO of the Aaron's Company, Mr. Dan Aaron's. Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Matt. Good morning. And uh, I still remember you know, circling the clouds it was quite a thunderstorm and we could see the lightning below. And truth be told, I probably should have left earlier in the day. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and had you, frankly, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be sharing this story now some 13 years later. Yeah. So, uh, and certainly the accolades were very much deserved. Congratulations 13 years later again on that award and, and on an incredible career. We're really looking forward to talking a little bit about a number of your roles, about how you see technical education evolving, about your commitment to technical education and STEM education. But I wanted to start with a quick question. You know, I've visited your office many times now. There's a statue that sits outside of your company headquarters, and it really represents just a great history of a great Wisconsin company. Can you tell our audience about that statue and tell us a little bit about the leaders that came before you with the Aaron's company and the legacy they've left and, and how they've kind of formed your view of, of leadership and how you manage and lead the company at this time? Sure. Thanks for the question too, Matt. We're proud of our history. We're proud of the legacy of each of the, the founders of our business. In a nutshell, my great-grandfather, Henry, moved from you know a little farm in Sheboygan Falls when he was about uh, 17 or 18 years old, started doing lumber in brilliant Wisconsin, of all places, back to the farm as a 20-year-old, started working at a foundry in Sheboygan Falls learned how to become a foundryman, moved back to Brilliant in the late 1800s, 1893, and started the Brilliant Ironworks. You know, Henry built that business into quite a significant business. 
until the depression in 1933. It hit him hard and he held on about as long as he could. And there's a whole story that we tell in the Aaron's Museum, which is as a sort of quick footnote, that museum we've turned into a story of entrepreneurship, manufacturing, American ingenuity, and we've built inside there what we call our own mini children's museum with about three or four learning areas that are based on STEM education. So, but You know, Henry taught us how to survive. And in 1933, you know, in those days, without a safety net, what did you do? You went back to work. And Henry started inventing the first American-made large tiller for a single person to operate versus, you know, then farm tractors were coming around. So it was a niche. He found his, his niche and he started making these tillers. And then my grandfather, his son, Steve, came out of UW-Wisconsin, was, was a metallurgist, but he's a very creative guy. And my grandfather and great-grandfather built the Aaron's Company starting in 1933. And from that, we are here today. My father was really the businessman that joined a couple of very innovative, inventive engineering types, but not real business types. And my dad really built this into a professional manufacturing company. And his claim to fame is basically the snowblower you mentioned to me that you have, Matt. My father joined the company in 1959, and we just launched the Aaron's two-stage snowblower, the Aaron's Snowthrow, as we call it today, and named it then. That brand, Snowthrow, goes back to 1959, 1960. And my father kind of built us into a manufacturing company, and that's really been who we are. Our core competency is really manufacturing. And so that statue that's just outside our front entrance is what I call generations. And in that statue is Henry is the grandfather looking over the drawing and the parts. My grandfather is basically holding the parts and showing the grandfather. And then there's a little boy that has his hands perched up on the table and his nose just above the table to see what's going on. And that's that's my father. So, you know, it's, it's three generations that built this company and put us in a position to be able to, to have what you describe as a really a good, strong business in a very small community. And we're really proud of that history. And that's why I decided to have that sculpture made. And not many companies can trace their history all the way back to 1893. And what an incredible journey it's been. You know, speaking of the journey, the Aaron's company was really one of the early adopters, in my view, of lean technology adopting continuous improvement, adopting advanced technologies. Given that continuous improvement is such a key part of your company's culture, now with some of the advancements in manufacturing, things like Industry 4.0, things like all the data-driven processes that we have, that's got to be having a tremendous impact, I would expect, in terms of how you see running a manufacturing operation today and, and where you see manufacturing evolving. To your point, we were really driving what we called continuous improvement, which, you know, at the time, Womack coined the phrase lean manufacturing, but it was really manufacturing engineering 101. It got a lot of praise. It got a lot of press. A lot of books were written. There were a lot of techniques that, of course, came from Toyota and came from the Japanese manufacturing systems. So it's really full circle from World War II and reestablishing Japan. But at the time when we took this on, About the middle 1990s, I was running the manufacturing plants and basically thought, you know, the world is changing. And what was happening is China was waking up and becoming manufacturing powerhouse. You know, you look today, 25 years later, and here they are. We could see that they were going to undercut all of our costs because they had such a labor advantage in terms of cost advantage. 
So for us, it was, hey, we had to get a whole lot smarter about how we touch parts and how we move parts and what's our indirect labor versus direct labor. And we started to really look at how do we take, you know, as much of the indirect labor out. But what we really were after was trying to to reduce us from becoming a large batch manufacturing company that held inventory and held up cash for too long and get us to be a flow company that was turning inventories, pulling parts through and not touching them as often, putting machines close together, letting an operator run two, three, four machines safely, but do it in a way that's efficient. There's a thousand tools in the toolbox for lean, and we were putting all of them to work. The summary of all that is we found out that the smartest people were in the plant doing the work. So really for me and us, lean manufacturing was about engaging the workforce in continuously improving the way that they worked. I've always felt like if they really believed in the company, they were going to help the company be better. A lot of efforts in lean would get subdued or slowed down because people doing the job or doing the work would see that that was threatening to their work. Well, no, actually, we can do more work in an hour's paid time, and that's just going to make us more efficient, and that's going to make us all more successful because we aren't going to get undercut. And one of the things I used to do is every five years, I would come up with, you know, what is the existential threat that's imposed on us by either our competition or something bigger than us, right? We're not going to control the Chinese economy. So we have to make sure that we take care of our world as best we can and just be the best in class that we can be as a company. Now, where that takes us, we just completed a very extensive I would call it complete top to bottom reshuffling of all of our manufacturing plant one, which is where we make our zero turn and commercial lawnmowers. I mean, literally not one square inch of that plant was not floor polished, ceiling and and walls painted, machines moved. If lean was what we've been doing for 25 years, now it's manufacturing 4.0, where we're actually using a combination of all the tools of lean and single piece flow and automation and autonomous moving vehicles that are actually continuing to drive out the amount of cost it takes us to make a lawnmower. So the pace we have today versus 13 years ago or 12 years ago, I think your eyes would be open right up. It's a very modern, very efficient, very autonomous and innovative manufacturing system today, making a lawnmower, right? We're competing with the world making lawnmowers. And in Brilliant, Wisconsin, uh, I think we're one of the best around. We may be the best manufacturers today of zero-turn mowers, uh, at least in the United States. And so that probably makes it the world. You know, and then the one thing I'll comment on that is important that you mentioned that this is our next step is this real data-driven manufacturing. And we're getting smarter. We have a long way to go yet, but we have lots of opportunities about machine intelligence and labor intelligence and parts and the quality of those parts. And uh, there's a whole lot of data gathering that we're just kind of getting started at. And if that's an invitation, by the way, to come see your plant again, I yeah. <laughs> I humbly accept. Absolutely. Would love to see it. It sounds absolutely fascinating. And by the way, I still have the Womack book that you referenced sitting at close hand in my office. <laughs> Good. And it's there because you recommended it to me a number of years ago. So all of this evolution is certainly changing how we prepare students for careers in advanced manufacturing. Whether that's a student in in high school, whether it's a student at one of our great technical colleges, whether that's an engineering student or STEM student at at a university, how do you see how we engage and how we educate students toward careers in the evolving world of advanced manufacturing? How How is that changing and how should it change? 
It's changing because, you know, the early days of Lean, we were looking for young kids to learn about solving problems, right? So, and we would talk about that all the time, that the best STEM education was really rooted in, you know, being innovative in ways to solve problems at your 16 and 17 and 18 years age, right? So that when you're ready to come into a workforce, any workforce, we would have young people ready to come into the workforce and help us continuously improve our business. And I think today that's still the premise and that's still the foundation we have. The difference is it's technology, right? It's not so much how are we going to look at some of the mechanical solutions. It's now how are we going to look at the digital data, computerized solutions that we have. Picture this. So in that plant that we just completed the transformation of, we bring a semi load of steel in a a flatbed truck. We unload that with a crane like most people do, but nobody really touches that sheet of steel until it gets to a welder who basically puts all the components together to weld it, but that's even robotically done. They hang that on a paint line and then no one really touches it until it comes off the paint line. So we've eliminated really all the touches. How did we do that? Autonomous vehicles perfect flow of carts of parts that are pulled and timed from cutting it at a laser to bending it at a press to welding it in a booth that's all in line. And it doesn't move more than 200 feet. And we're moving them at a rate of hundreds to thousands a minute, right? So it's how do young people come into the workforce and see that flow and sort of not be intimidated by that, but look at it and go, oh, I got a better way, right? We want young people to come in, bring their young, fresh minds and say, you know, what you did is really great, but hey, I got another idea. I think if we can bring young, fresh minds into the business every day with that attitude, we'll continue to improve. And speaking of those young, fresh minds, you know, if I think back 5, 10, 15 years ago, most manufacturers, when they started to realize we had an incredible shortage of skilled talent here in the United States, sat back and complained about it. I can't tell you how many meetings I went to, whether it was, you know, meetings of CEOs or continuous improvement groups, best practices groups, and they would just sit around and complain. Now, one of the things that I know you've been a huge advocate for is being very proactive with your school district. For our listeners who've never been to really in Wisconsin, and that probably includes a number of them, it's a small town. It's really close to close to nothing, really. I mean, it's it's kind of out in the middle, in the middle of nowhere in a really, really good way. It's a charming area, a great culture. I've known from conversations with your middle school, conversations with the high school, conversations with the superintendent in uh, Brilliant, Dominic Madison, that the Aaron's company didn't just sit on its hands and complain about the quote skills gap. You really rolled up your sleeves and said, how can we engage? Can you share with our audience some examples of, of things that you've done both in the middle school and in the high school to uh, inspire young people around careers in advanced manufacturing and then help give them the, the skills and competencies they need to be successful when they get there? One of the things, Matt, is we've always been very aggressive, and I mean aggressive, on bringing in apprentices. For 20 years, I just kind of made it a mandate that every department, engineering, finance, marketing, manufacturing, NHR, those core departments, I wanted them every summer to take someone, and it would be high school to college. They had to have X number of apprentices every year. And even when we were having sort of a difficult year financially, I didn't want to stop the apprentice program. We know that the number of apprentices we have, more than you know, 30 young people that are there because they came to us as an apprentice in high school or college. And it, it's probably more than the number I just said of 30. 
I think it's important that they're able to walk into a business environment. Let's say you're 16 or 17 and we have you working in IT. There's lots of kids that want to learn computer systems. Well, three o'clock, they come to us for a couple hours a day and they do you know, important tasks that help them learn and help us do some things that are routine. And, and they just get some experience and say, well, this is what an office is like. Just that little experience you might get a couple hours a day, I think helps every young person to grow. And, you know, the high school superintendent, Dominic, approached us and asked us about building a STEM education system. He had an educator named Steve Myers, who's now at Fox Valley Tech, who had this great idea. I'm really happy they approached us, right? The school has been running for 15 years now. And then five or six years ago, maybe it's five now, Dominic approached us again and said, hey, we wanted to, we want to build a middle school STEM program. And so now we did a middle school and then, hey, we want to do a K through eight. So we have in Brilliant, Wisconsin, like you described, kind of in the middle of nowhere, 30 miles south of Green Bay and 25 miles to the east is Lake Michigan and 25 miles to the west is Appleton. We're out in the middle there. We have a great system, uh, one of the best, I think, best school systems in the state. You can join the public school system from kindergarten on and get some form of problem solving through STEM education all the way until you graduate. And now with Steve Meyer at Fox Valley, we collaborate with the technical college so that our you know juniors and seniors are getting Fox Valley accredited courses at Brilliant High School. And you're right. I used to do the same thing you did, Matt. I would go to those same meetings and listen to CEOs like me. And I would kind of get cross with them and say, what are you doing? You're supposed to lead instead of complain about your problems of finding skilled workforce. Go do something. When I was with Governor Walker and, and the chair of the WEDC, uh, when he created that group, I would do these meetings. We'd do roundtables with CEOs and the governor's there listening. And I would kind of get cross and say, guys, you got to do it in your community. You can't expect the state of Wisconsin to fix this for you. You got to fix, you know, brilliant 54110 and you got to then fix Green Bay 54313. But that's that's just my attitude. You're right. Instead of complaining, go do something. Exactly. You know, about six years ago now, Dan, I wrote a, a magazine column for Production Machining Magazine, and it was called The Skills Gap is Your Fault. And it was really pointing the finger at industrial employers for exactly what you're saying for not being engaged, for not having plants that were maybe inviting for a new generation of workers, for not financially supporting their school districts the way that that the Aaron's company has. And that column made a lot of people mad, but I think it opened some eyes as well. And, you know, five or six years later, there's still a long way to go, but I can tell you that that our manufacturers are now much more engaged in understanding their role and in improving their local districts in much the same way that, that Aaron's has. So we know that continuous improvement is important in manufacturing. We know that technical education is a a big part of helping us solve the lack of skilled talent. And so in the spirit of continuous improvement, not complaining, not pointing the finger, one of the things we love to ask our guests is, if there's one thing that you could change about technical education here in America, what would that one thing be? It's it's sort of an attitude thing, right? It's kind of like, you know, we're really busy every day trying to make a lawnmower better. And then educators are working busy every day trying to teach kids better. And I have heard this as a fairly legitimate complaint that educators don't really look at the business community or business leaders as a peer or as someone to collaborate with. And I know we do things because I've done them where we all get together and we talk about it, you know, talk about how do we make a better skilled workforce? Well, it's not the talking about, it's the doing part. Dominic, in that case, reached out to me 
I wouldn't have thought, hey, let me go approach Dominic and say, hey, let's build STEM education. Well, part of it, I didn't understand what is STEM education 15 years ago. I didn't know what they were talking about. But when they explained, it just made perfect sense to me. You know, maybe the one thing that I think we're getting better at, but I would say to accelerate is, hey, when we bring in an apprentice, not just the tool and die apprentice, not just the digital apprentice in IT from Fox Valley, it's just generalist. How do we figure out how to give that real accredited curriculum, right? Hey, you're going to Aaron's company to learn. Let's give that person course credit with Fox Valley. We'll pay them, right? They're going to get an hourly pay. But how do we also say that that works toward their education degree in some way? Well, and I think there is a way, you know, we're going to see more of an evolution toward workplace-based learning and certainly apprenticeship programs, of, again, something you were a leader on are going to get a lot of attention, we believe, here in the next several years. So I think we will see more opportunities for students to receive college credit for what they learn at work. And, and credit for prior learning is, is another great trend that we're just huge fans of as you start to look at competency-based learning. It shouldn't be about how long you spend inside the classroom. It should be about what you know when you get done. And in some ways, what you know when you get done has a lot to do with what you know when you get there. And so if we can form that education around competencies, that's a great way to, to approach it. And to your point, creating great partnerships between industrial employers and educators. One of the things that we counsel educators for, and it goes back to uh, an actually a letter that I received back when I was running a manufacturing company as CEO. And I received a letter from our local school district that said, we're putting new technology into our tech ed program. We'd like every industrial employer to send us $5,000. And the, the individual who had sent that letter lamented to me about three months later, he said, would you believe that not one sent us $5,000? And I said, yes, I'd believe that not one sent you $5,000. And we, we say, you have to ask for help, not money. And it really should be about getting minds around the table and saying, how can we collaborate for the benefit of our communities and our students? And if money is part of the problem, industrial employers will step up with their treasure to support good initiatives, but it's got to be about the initiative, not just about the money. So I think you, you make a great point there and your partnership with your, your local district is a great example of that. Speaking of setting a great example, I want to, I want to turn right now to the topic of sustainability. When we think about, you know, the next generation of manufacturing talent, when we think about Gen Z and, and those that followed, they're becoming much more environmentally conscious and aware and concerned. They want to work for a company that shares those values. Aaron's company recently received the Wildlife Habitat Council Conservation Certification. I know that's something that you're proud of. Can you tell us about this project and why it's important to you? It's interesting. And, and I would say we didn't do it focused on Gen Zs and the next generation of young people, but I'm happy to know that they'll be the benefactors of, you know, a really nice habitat and brilliant. I think it's just our overall thinking about us and our community, Aaron's company and our community and brilliant. You know, we've been there, as I said, since 1893, when, you know, the story of Henry pulling two sleighs with all of his household belongings and his brand new wife, Christine, to move to Brilliant. And my great-grandfather, Henry, was the chief of the fire department. He was on the city council. He was, he was building that community while he built a business. And so that was always a mindset that we have a lot to do and, and we have a lot to be thankful for in this community. And, and the lot to do means nurturing it, thanking it. We own a lot of property in that community because we always looked at plant expansion. And so I had a lot of acres between our two plants that are on Highway 10, just uh, west of the, the downtown, which by saying that, that means one left turn. Okay. Right. Yeah. I've been there. I know. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, we had 
something, I think it's 260 acres. And an employee came to me and said, hey, Dan, we got to do something to honor your dad. And he was a big runner. He used to run all the time. So we decided to use these acres to, to build a trail, a running trail or a, a walking path. And it's about four miles long. And stumbling around in there, we found all kinds of, there's a fox den in there. There's a bunch of turkeys all over there. There's, of course, deer everywhere, all kinds of unique wildlife. The bird watching community, the cranes are there, and we're right next to the Brilliant Marsh. And that's a federally protected marsh. So we decided, hey, we're not going to build another plant in this 200 acres. Now, why don't we take it a step further? We built the trail for my father and the community to use. Then we started to look at that whole area and we decided that we have a really unique land resource here and decided to start protecting it. We built the trail. We put wildflowers and habitat all around the trail. So as you walk, it's native landscape. And then we needed to pollinate that. So we started to bring in the bees that we needed for pollination. And now we make our own honey. So we're perpetuating that whole ecosystem there with we put up a bunch of unique birdhouses because the sparrows are overtaking the bluebirds. And so we're trying to protect the bluebird population. I heard a speech at one of our industry trade meetings. And in that talk, Margaret O'Gorham from Wildlife Habitat Council kind of inspired me to take it further. So three years ago, we started down this path to certify this whole property as a protected area that we maintain. It's one of those trade-offs that we haven't thrown all the property back to the state, but we've taken on the responsibility of protecting it like the DNR would. We're going to do all the things necessary to protect that land and the ecosystem that's in that land. We're proud of that whole area being part of what we're doing for the community. And to be able to get the certification, the real big meaning there is there's not a lot of these that are handed out. So we did a lot of work to certify the land. We document the wildlife that's there. We'll continue to document that. And we have an ongoing conservation program for that whole 260 acres. What a great way to honor your father's legacy and, and to do it in a way that really also honors the environmental legacy of the town in which you do business. And, and I'm sure for generations to come, both your employees and residents of Brilliant will be the beneficiaries of that. Speaking of the state of Wisconsin, I admit that I'm a lifelong Green Bay Packer fan. I became a Packer fan in the 1970s, and, and I like to think that the last three decades are kind of payback in a good way for enduring the 70s and 80s. You know, I think if you're a kid that grows up in Green Bay, your first dream is probably to play football for the Green Bay Packers. If that doesn't come true, maybe the next best thing would be to have a role on the executive board of the Green Bay Packers franchise. And for our listeners who may not know, that's like the inner circle of leadership for one of the greatest sports franchises in the history of professional sports. You actually get to have that dream job. You know, there's a lot of Packers questions we'd love to ask you that you wouldn't be able to answer. So I figured we'd come up with one that you're at liberty to, to answer. And that is, can you tell us how your experience on the executive board of the Green Bay Packers franchise makes you a better manufacturing leader? I think you're right. We all sort of dream the dream about how we're going to play professional sports and we're going to be a Packer. And I mean, our uh, when I grew up, my older brother and I, you know, every evening we were out playing football or throwing the ball around and getting the whole neighborhood together. And it's five on five or two on two, we're playing football. When I joined the Packer board, you start to recognize the scale that it is as a business by itself. And that's really our role as the executive committee. We're watching the operations of the business and overseeing that and giving it guidance. 
basically sitting in the shoes of a shareholder of the company, making sure that the business performs well. And I think one of the important things for us to do is to kind of stay out of the way of the football operations people and just not, not affect any of their thinking, their mindset, their jobs. You know, I mean, we're, we're not football operators, we're business operators. And what I think it's helped me is to see how that business as a hospitality entertainment business versus a manufacturing business operates, right? You know, what are the, the core competencies that make the Packers a great organization? One of the the things that we would look at is when we're ranked as one of the best places to go in professional sports, that's not just Lambeau Field. It's not just the team playing on the field. It's it's the whole larger community. And and the things that make the Packers great are the idea that we're in a small town in the Midwest, the smallest community that has a franchise in professional sports. And, you know, there's a lot of pride in that. And I think to see that and the analogy really with our own business, we ship snowblowers all over the world. We're on every continent in the world. We're on every mountain peak that you can pretty much name. There's going to be an air and snowblower, including the island, the big island in Hawaii. There's a weather station that gets snow and there's a snowblower up there. And the Packers are the same, right? That That is a brand that goes around the globe and has fans all over the world that want to be part. They love the game. They love the football But I think they also love the idea of who are the Packers. We're this always sort of underdog team that's really got, frankly, the best quarterback in the NFL, right? But the underdog team that we're always kind of up against the bigger guys, right? The bigger owners, the bigger pockets. And, you know, as a business, we've got to perform well to keep up with the Joneses, if you will. And I would say, as we're ranked, I can tell you this, that we are, we are always ranked within the top 10 across the league in terms of how we perform as a business. You know, we're just, we're that good. And I would throw all the credit, by the way, to Mark Murphy. Mark is a tremendous leader. He's done some great, great things for the Green Bay Packers to make us run and act like a very successful and disciplined business. And then, you know, Mark does let his general manager and coaches do what they do, coach and run the team and pick the players and do the things they need to do. And Mark's just done a really tremendous job. I have a lot of respect for what he's brought to the organization. And I think he really changed who we are as a business and how we run, how we're governed, how we, how we operate this thing. Mark Murphy, genuinely a great leader for the Green Bay Packers franchise. What a, a tremendous amount to carry on his shoulders, of course, looking back at all of the history and the expectations of the fans. I believe the only publicly owned football franchise in the 32-team NFL. Yeah. Just a tremendous amount to carry on his shoulders as he as he and, and your group of leaders pull that franchise in a great way into the future. Looking forward to the future of football and also looking forward to the future of manufacturing. And as we kind of close out our time here today with the chairman and CEO of the Aaron's company, Mr. Dan Aaron's, Dan, I'm interested in, as you look at the future of manufacturing, we've talked about how we got here in terms of Industry 4.0. What do you think the next five or 10 years hold in terms of innovation and manufacturing technology? What should should we have our eyes on? It's kind of more of what's going on right now. It's it's a lot of automation is going to come faster and faster and faster. The pandemic has taught us how to do what we're doing right now virtually speaking. And I think every time technology takes a leap like it just did in the last, you know, roughly 15 or 16 months where we were not working close together, we learned how to do this quickly. 
it's going to drop a whole lot of lessons back into manufacturers on you know how we have to do things in a digital world in a technology driven society how we manufacture in ways that technology is going to provide for us and i think we're going to have to be faster on our feet in terms of inventing and putting capital in places where automation and the digital world is going to give us real opportunity and we got to do that in a responsible way because going too fast could leave a lot of people behind and i don't know how else to say that except that you know there are people that aren't going to move as fast as they need to to learn the things that the new world is going to give us and it's all technology whether it's voice automation whether it's video the capturing of data in small and big universes and the speed with which we're going to make decisions is going to have you know the human brain pushed to a limit and the computer is going to be taking over a lot of the decision making that typically we've done whether it was with a pencil and an abacus or with a pc but now big data is going to drive lots and lots of decisions and those decisions are things that used to have human beings doing that aren't going to be doing it anymore so how do we do that and not leave a lot of people behind that's really going to be a challenge and i think that's where it comes back to training and education you know i i mentioned to dominic and he told me we're already doing this so i'm i'm happy to hear that but maybe as much as we're teaching english and spelling we should be teaching young kids at the age of 10 12 14 we should be teaching them how to code how to write computer language as much as the english language dominic tells me we're doing that in some classes at our stem elementary program i i have a really good friend in india who's been very successful his whole life and i asked him what are you going to do he's in his 60s i said what's your next decade like and he said i'm putting all of my time into helping the schools in my local district in uh, goa india and i said i want young kids to learn how to code that's all i want them to do he said i'm going to put all of my money into helping curriculum around teaching these young students in goa india how to code computers and learn computer language Well, if they're doing that in India, we better be doing that in the United States. Absolutely. It's a global environment and it doesn't matter if uh, you're competing with the company down the block or the company around the world, we're all in that global competitive environment. I think Dan, one of the things you said that I wrote down is we need to learn the things that the world is going to give us. None of us know for sure what the world is going to give us, but I think certainly teaching things like coding and teaching students about big data, teaching students about how important the ability to analyze information, draw conclusions and quickly continuously improve based upon what that information is telling us is going to be incredibly incredibly important. So, appreciate those insights both on the future of manufacturing technology and on what our education sector should be doing to prepare our students for for changes not just in manufacturing but really in every sector of our economy. I want to thank you so much Dan Aaron's chairman and CEO of the Aaron's company for spending some time with us here on the Tech Ed podcast. It's been a really really enlightening time. Uh your insights are incredibly incredibly helpful and just really appreciate you taking time out of your day to share them with our audience. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much, Matt. I appreciate you inviting me here and these are important areas that we all need to be thinking about in both our businesses but in the education community as well. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Dan, and thank you as well to our audience for spending time with us on the Tech Ed podcast here today. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.